Thanks for joining us on the Gen Church Wa podcast of Generations Church. We are a community of everyday people who are committed to expanding God's family together because of Jesus for generations to come. Right now, we are gearing up for the holiday season. It'll be a formational time for all. You can participate with us during this season by heading over to our website, mygenerations.church, and take a look around. In a world that downplays spiritual integration into everyday life, in this masterclass, I'm going to talk about divisions and factions, sexuality and gender, Christian liberty and philosophy, the gathering and gifting of the church, and how the life, death, and coming back to life of Jesus changes everything. As we continue in our series, Masterclass, we're going to discuss an approach to life that will see you through every change and controversy, through every internal struggle and external chaos. I hope you enjoy the teaching from today's scriptures. Welcome to Masterclass. So we're reading from 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 13. I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. I did not mean the immoral people of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Otherwise, you would have to leave the world. But actually, I wrote you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister and is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater, a verbally abusive, a drunkard, or a swindler. Do not even eat with such, with such a person. For what business is it of mine to judge outsiders? Don't you judge those who are inside? God judges outsiders. Remove the evil person from among you. I'm so excited to continue our series on master class today. It's probably not a good opening when uh, I say, I want to say, hey, can you hear me now when you have, when you're used to having kind of mic and technical difficulties, but can you hear me now? The wandering man with a cell phone used to say as he went from place to place and all kinds of different commercials, and wherever the phone company placed him, he was there on his phone saying, can you hear me now? As the competing cellular companies jockeyed for your loyalty or tried to sway you from one to join the other, the message was simple. We have better clarity and strength on your call. Now, apparently his loyalty was able to be swayed because he jumped from one company to the other. They brought him back again, but, you know, I guess loyalty can be bought in his case. But the point was that the clarity and strength of the call mattered. And there was less likely to be interference with the signal between your phone and another. Underneath this letter to the Corinthian church, Paul, as he is addressing behaviors, is the call to become what they were, or what they were, or what we are. And just like that Corinthian church, we have all kinds of things that want to run interference, that want to get in the way of the call to become what we are in Christ. Especially interference, things that want to get in the way between God's desired relationship with us. And we, if we want to improve that relationship, then we must increase the clarity of the signal by continuing the conversation even when there seems to be interference. 
As we get into today's text, it's important to remember that relationships are a series of conversations. What is the relationship of my family, my kids, my wife? It's those conversations, verbal and nonverbal, had over a set of experiences and moments talked about, shared over thousands of instances. And what Paul is doing is he's having a conversation with the Corinthian church in the form of a letter. And this letter that he wrote would have been read aloud to the gathered church. And this letter was likely circulated between all kind of the micro churches or that would have come together as the single church. Now this isn't the first time though that Paul has written to this church. I had John read uh, the end of chapter 5. We're going to go back to verse 1 and work our way through the passage. But I had him start with that to remind us that this is a conversation between Paul and the people. People that he loves, that he cares for, and he wants them to see them become what they are in Christ. But the challenge is, as we look at this letter, it's like reading text messages where you only see one side, but you don't even see the beginning of the conversation. It's like you've missed the first half of it. So we pick up somewhere in the middle of this exchange where Paul has to clarify what he has said in an earlier instance. With this in mind, we now get to step into the messy, uncomfortable situation that Paul has to deal with within the Corinthian church. Paul writes in chapter 5, verse 1, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. That's not even tolerated among the Gentiles. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. Translation, a dude is sleeping with his stepmom. And as if that isn't the whole issue, Paul continues, how arrogant. And Paul's response, how to deal with this guy, is to have him removed from the church. He names an issue and proposes a solution. There are really three issues at hand as we look at this. There's the sexual sin itself. I'm not going to deal with that today per se. We're going to look at um, sexuality and gender uh, after the turn of the new year um, as we get into some later chapters of 1 Corinthians. But it, there, the next issue is the pride of the people in dealing with this man and looking at him, and then his pride himself, and then the misunderstanding of their purpose. And at f- first glance, I think there are two reactions to Paul's proposed solution. Remove this evil person from among you. I think the first is this, aha, that's why I don't like the church. They're judgy. They're hypocritical, and they just can't wait to get rid of you. They don't really love you when you sin. So let's kick them out, and that's why I don't like the church. So that's one, that's one kind of response. The second response is, good. Paul's standing up for morality. God is judging, therefore the person should feel the wrath. They should, sin should be dealt with, and they should be kicked out because God's church is supposed to be pure and holy and good. Therefore, when we see sin, we got to make sure we get it out. But I think both of these initial responses, the aha kind of got you and the good, 
miss the nuance and care that Paul has had with this church and in the conversation. He's tried some other measures, and he's written to them before, and we're not quite sure what those other measures were, but what we are sure of is that he's trying to get them to understand something deeper. And so his application to this deeper principle is to remove this man at this moment. And so today we're going to kind of try to trace our way back and to see what's at the root issue and then how we might apply that principle in our lives today. At the onset of his letter, Paul has attempted to argue that the Corinthians have put their wisdom ahead of God's. In doing this, the church has shifted its center away from Jesus to the charisma of a leader. In other words, they like to do things for a kind of pomp and circumstance, what looks good. And so by any means necessary, they will go, oh, this looks good, so let's do that, or let's cheerlead that, or let's champion that. And what Paul is saying is, just because it looks good and sounds good, doesn't mean it's actually good. And so here is a situation that exposes this reality. Rather than be grieved by such distortion of sexuality and relationship, they are proud. Paul's motivation for calling out this sin is not to condemn nor condone, but to recenter the man and the church and their public witness on Jesus. You're going to hear me deal with that the rest of our way in those three layers. When we evaluate sin, when we look at our own lives, and as we, we consider what's happening in the lives of others, we consider their individual life, the life of the family, and then how that family is represented to the world. And Paul is more interested in them living up to their calling. And the man's sin affects himself, the church, and their witness. Paul writes, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you might be new unle- a new unleavened batch, as indeed you are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us observe the feast, not with old leaven or with the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul is mixing kind of a metaphor of meaning here to prove a point. He uses this Passover lamb and this unleavened bread. And let's deal with the unleavened bread. First, leaven was not the same as yeast. It was fermented dough left over to be used as a rising agent in the next batch of bread. So there was some left over that was carried forward. But unleavened bread had special meaning. For it was used a special time of year to remember God's rescue from Egypt, where God had rescued them. And what Paul notes is that they are already unleavened bread. They're already rescued. They're already clean. They are already good. And if they refuse to deal with the old way of living that wants to creep in and corrupt who they actually are, leaven in this instance, the result is sabotage of divine calling. 
See, what he is saying is, be who you are. And when you let old patterns, old way of livings re-enter your life, you're actually corrupting, you're settling for a lesser version of humanity. Because the people were to live in relationship with God, display his image, and care for creation. And they were not doing that when they allowed an old way of living, a lesser way of living, creep back in. And what Paul is saying, you must deal with that so that you can be fully human. You can be who God says you are. And so he doesn't write this person off and saying, we'll, we'll get with that here in a minute, where, where he just condemns them and says they're, they're unfit for use. They, they should just be cast aside and never have the opportunity to return. Nor he says, actually in this case, very directly, do not approve of this. See, in tolerating, nay, approving of the sin, they were settling for that lesser version of humanity, community, and the world. And just for clarity, in Christ, they had already received the power of the Spirit to be who they were called to be. See, when you let the old leaven creep back in, you're sabotaging who God says you are. And the power to have joy and peace, and patience in those moments. And what God is saying, what, what Paul is saying here to this church, is he's saying, you must be aware of the change that has taken place in your life because of Christ. See, that's our hope, is that as you journey with Jesus, as you say yes to him in all areas of life, you become more aware where you're becoming like him and you're becoming aware of the areas in your life that aren't like Jesus. So that as you see the two, you're able to go, yeah, I see and I feel when that wants to creep back in and sabotage my life. And so what Paul wants them to do is seek to understand the calling that you have in Christ. Become what you are, not take advantage of what you are. What Paul is saying is their boasting is not good because the tendency here is to say, oh yeah, I'm forgiven because of Christ so I can do whatever the heck I want. Or I'm forgiven or I can be forgiven or I can just be accepted and approved what, no matter what I do, and that is true, no matter your past fears or failures, you can be forgiven in Christ. But when you are in Christ, the call is to become what you are, to live that out in every area of life. Not say, well, I'll just go back for a little while and then try to return. The goal is not to have your mindset set on that. And so Paul says they're arrogant. This man is boasting and saying, hey, I can do whatever I want now. But the reality is, is that personal sin does not happen in isolation. Personal sin always results in collateral suffering. Your sin has an effect on other people. Just as your striving towards Jesus has an effect on others. And sometimes when we insert that word sin in there, we kind of balk and go, well, no, it doesn't. My sin doesn't affect anyone else. But if you just simply substituted that word sin for actions, you'd probably instantly go, yeah, of course my actions have consequences and have an effect on others. But the moment we sometimes we in insert that word sin, 
because of the baggage we bring to it. We kind of balk and go, well, there is no way my sin my, has an effect on others. But the reality is it does. When leaven is introduced to unleavened bread, it ruins the dough. And so the goal is to live an increasingly cleansed life because we have already been cleansed. It's like doing some laundry and intentionally putting on that, uh, the clothes that just came out of laundry and going out and like rolling around in a mud puddle just to say, oh, I can totally clean it again. The goal is not to go get dirty so that you can just get clean again. The goal is to remember that you have been cleansed, that opportunity has been afforded to you. So keep your focus on Jesus and what he has called you to. And so the point of this illustration is that tolerating this immorality could tempt others to see how far they could push things. I think of old conversations I used to have with my students in student ministry. And we'd occasionally put a difficult topic kind of on the table. And we, we'd talk about that, and we'd use God's Word, and we'd say, what about this or what about this? And there's all kinds of cultural topics that we could throw on the table today, and we'd want to go, man, how about this or what about that? But I kid you not, some of you who have kids of your own know this, they always wanted to know, no matter where the conversation went or took us, where is the line? Usually because they wanted to do everything seemingly possible to butt right up to that line but not cross it because they didn't because the consequences getting in trouble um, or just fear of others. But it's, they, wanted, they wanted to know where the line is to get right up to it. Or, in the rebellious kid's case, as I was always one, let's see if I could go to the complete opposite side because now I know where the line is. Now I can do, I know what it takes to push those buttons and go to the opposite way. Or, in some cases, they wanted to put all the things in place to make sure they never got close to the line. Because the closer they got to the line, they had a sense of like dis cognitive dissonance. They had to wrestle. There was more gray than they liked. They liked the black and white. They liked the line. And so they put all these things there to never even get close to the line, to the moral line. See, the man is proud of his sin. He's saying, I'm on the other side of the line, and it's okay because I'll definitely be welcomed back. The reality is, of course, you can be forgiven, but your focus is on the wrong target. His focus is on the line. And sometimes we get so caught up on where the line is that we focus more on the line than Jesus. Because if you focus on the moral line, of course you'll get it right, or you'll move it, or when, when difficult circumstances arise, we're not so sure where that line is. But in focusing on the line, you've actually missed the target. You may remember the story of Matt Emmons where he was one trigger pull away from winning his second gold medal at the 2004 Olympics. And in the lead position of the 50-meter three-position rifle competitions, Emmons was so far ahead that his last bullet needed only to hit the target, anywhere on the target. With unwavering calm and unbelievable precision, he fired his bullet and watched it pierce the bullseye. But a few seconds passed, and no score lights appeared on the board. And when three red-jacketed officials approached, Emmons was sure 
that the scoreboard was just broken. But it wasn't. He was in shock. Because when the officials informed him that he had hit the wrong target. While standing in lane two, he had fired at the target in lane three. And that day, the officials awarded him a zero. And he didn't even place in the competition. At some point, we're going to aim at the wrong target. We're going to find ourselves so sure of ourselves, of where the line is and how we should approach it, and we realize that we're aiming wrong. See, the goal is not to aim at the moral line. The, the goal is to aim at Jesus. And when you aim at Jesus, you will always get the moral line in difficult circumstances and difficult situations. And so it's to aim at the target and know that when we aim at the wrong target, that we can be forgiven, that we can have access to a winning place because it's not us that's trying to seek the scorecard or the scoreboard. It's that Jesus does that for us. The other area that sin affects is that public witness. See, the church was to be the beautiful alternative to the world. And in doing so, the ethic needed to be distinct. And so Paul's solution is not automatically kick everyone out of the church who sins, nor zero in on this particular sin as greater than others. His point is no one would be left. That's kind of why at the end of the passage, as he starts to list off all these things, because the tendency is to focus on that one issue rather than focus on the whole issue. And he gives the list not to help them fixate on a particular behavior because he's saying there aren't levels to sin. Sin is an equal opportunity offender. But such an act may be need to have so that the person can recognize the depth of their calling because the calling is not to avoid specific sin. The calling is to focus on Jesus and live his will and his way in every aspect of your life. See, your identity is not on what you can get away with or how moral you are, but in the beauty and grace of Jesus. And your public witness isn't about getting it right all the time because we will always find ourselves aiming at the wrong target. Your public witness is having a because of Jesus reason that brings change and produces a life that represents his calling. And it's a calling of depth and of risk. Because it's not always easy to venture into following Jesus because he's in the lead position and you don't necessarily have the coordinates or the directions in your hand. We were joking earlier this morning about kind of the way gatherings work and flow. And it was, I said, I like organized chaos. And John rightly said, he's like, yeah, when you're the one organizing the chaos. And I think that's precisely the point. We all like to be in that control seat. It's so much harder. It's so much riskier to say in every and any moment, I'm going to look to Jesus' will and Jesus' way and do my best to follow him. It takes some risk. But as I said earlier, in the risk of following Jesus, when we don't follow Jesus take some collateral and some consequences and results in suffering. But when we 
risk and we seek to follow Jesus, there's corporate good because there's communal benefit and recognizing that there's mutual mercy. See, the underlying assumption in Paul's proposed solution is that when the man is cast out, he will no longer have a place to belong or experience the amazing work of God. And if we take this at face value, to view the church as a business or social club, then someone can go right down the street and experience the same type of thing that they have here. However, if the church is something more, if it's church is a family, if the church is a place where strangers become neighbors, become friends, become family, if the church is a place of unconditional love and grace and patience and persistence and joy, then when this man is removed from the community of people that are pursuing a way of living distinct from the world, then the death of his way of, of sin will have to happen in order to return to the community because he wouldn't belong elsewhere and would potentially lead to his loss of life. His whole way of life would be altered. See, the hope is that the relationships within the church were to be so robust that they could handle the addressing of sin. That the relationships within the church could be so good, so deep. We could be so patient and so calm with each other. So, so involved in each other's life that when the natural solution, as in this case that Paul proposes, it actually grieves the church to have to remove this man because they love him, they care for him, and they know what is happening in his life. But it assumes that the relationships are so robust, so deep, that it can handle the reality of saying, and we care so much about you, that your continued path in this way is actually destroying yourself and the will and the way of God within this church. I think the point of application for us is that we have to pursue relationships representative of our calling. We have to get involved in our life. And again, once again, you're going to hear me, that involves some risk. That involves an evaluation of priorities. That involves of... Uh, taking some time to go out to lunch with someone, grabbing a cup of coffee, reorganizing one's schedule to ensure that we can be involved in our lives. Or, and I think the more natural way, is figuring out how we can include people in our rhythms. Because without the inclusion, without the robust relationships within the church, the relationship will not be able to handle conversations about blind spots. And there won't be enough trust to be vulnerable to ensure deep change. I'm going to bring up a picture of the Johari window again. Do we have that? Okay, we don't have it this week. But, uh, but you remember it? Well, good. There's four quadrants. And there's a level of risk that happens when we recognize that there are some things in our life that are hidden that we're unsure others are ready to hear or handle. But when we know that God wants us to change, 
that the power of the Holy Spirit lives in you and lives in others. We can work to build a level of trust with each other to share some tough things, knowing that the same mercy that you would afford others will be afforded to you. And also, that as you see something in the life of someone else, maybe an area that they're blind to that's in their blind spot, that because you have taken time and patience to sit with them in both the joy and also the sorrow, that when you say, hey, brother, hey, sister, do you recognize when you say this, the type of effect it has on people? Do you, do you recognize that when we talk about this difficult conversation, you always tend to shut down? Do you, do you recognize that, that how you treat your kid or you treat your spouse has the appearance of maybe fill in the blank? But you've got, you can only do that when there's robust relationship, when there's trust, when you see each other more than just someone who sits in the chair next to you on Sunday. When you see them as someone to keep at a distance, but instead when you see them more as family. And that's risky. And I understand what I'm saying by putting that out there. But here's the beautiful thing about Jesus is sometimes we don't know how to do that well. But the power of God, the power of the Holy Spirit working in us, gives us precisely what we need to take us from strangers to friends to family. See, it's in fact the power of the Spirit of God that makes us family. It's not something, again, that you have to try or that you have to earn. It's something you already are. See, as I look around with some of you, I don't have to go, man, I, I have to do all of these steps to become family. No, because we are found in Christ together, we already are family. We are already siblings in Christ. And what Paul wants us to recognize is that we all are part of the family and we need to learn what it looks like to play by our Father's set of rules. And that will be messy and difficult. And that we should pursue that together. And if we just remove each other and say, you stop being my family because you do something dumb, then pretty soon we won't have any family all together. But he's saying, no, in this case, we have to recognize that we need to continue to pursue what we are. This is why we have our value story over sin at Generations Church, where we cultivate lasting relationships that discover how Jesus shapes our identity, our past, and our future, rather than being defined by others or ourselves. See, if you've not exhausted the effort of the relationship before addressing the sin, then you should not rush to judgment on the sin, especially if you do not know the salvation status of another. The hope that Paul has here is that if this man is cast out and dies in his spirit, he may return to God and be saved. See, here lies the bigger image. It's less about the sin and more about the story of Jesus, the work that he can do. And even when we 
feel like I don't know what else to do. There is a hope that the bigger story, the love of God, the pervasive witness in the world, and the robustness of relationships because of who God says we are can bring about change. In this passage like this, it's easy to kind of flaunt or fight the judgment of God. What Paul recognizes here is that the outside world passes judgment too. But the difference between the two is that God provides a way for the judgment of God to be fulfilled. The Passover lamb. See, story over sin isn't just about taking time to sit down and listen to someone else's story getting to know them, building those robust relationships. It's also about knowing and understanding about a creator God who sees us precisely where we are and loves us and moves towards us. And in our guilt and in our shame and in our fear provides the remedy that is Jesus to bring us into the family. See, we don't have to sacrifice to achieve our status into the family. The sacrifice has already been made. The adoption papers have already been signed. We are in the family because of Jesus. And the goal is to live out of that reality and communicate that to others, that they have adoption papers waiting for them too, that they are loved and that they are welcome and that they are needed and necessary within the family. And to get them to recognize that that access comes through Christ. In that lamb and through that lamb, we are able to know what love is. As I wrap up today, just to give you guys kind of a little look forward, we're going to take a break from our master class series And we're going to make a slight pivot for the next four weeks. And we're going to look at a series called Advent or Coming. And what we're doing over these next four weeks is we're helping us, ourselves, and our church recenter on Jesus. See, as we await the coming of the Messiah, as we wait the coming of God in flesh in Jesus, as we remember that, knowing that in the end he is our Passover lamb, that he provides the sacrifice and then also provides the victorious resurrection, that we can take this time and all the hustle and bustle and all the activity and all the trimmings and trappings of Christmas, all the joy of family or maybe even the grief of remembering lost ones and a time of joy and celebration, that we can take a moment And focus on preparing ourselves to be used by God and practicing what that love is. And so here's my ask. In a moment like today, when we read a passage like this, it's easy to start to run through a list of maybe sins or things that all need to be addressed in our lives or even in our world, and say, oh, we need to do one of those two things. We should say good, or we should reject. And I would ask us to find a third way. The third way would be this, that we prepare our own souls 
to be shaped and used by God. That we reflect on who He is and what He has done for us. That we would find moments of quietness, moments to pray, and contemplate and reflect so that we can then be present with others. So that when we step into activity with others, whether it's family, holiday, meals, or activities that we have going around Generations Church, sports, or parents drop and shop, that when we participate, we're not participating out of guilt or shame or desire to achieve, but we're participating one out of great centeredness, knowing that the love and the grace of God has come to change us, to rescue and renew us precisely where we are so that we can then be present with others. And so as we do that, I'm not, I understand that you may not always have the right words to say. Maybe you want to invite or you want to take a risk and include someone else. I'm not asking you to profess exhaustive knowledge. What I am asking is that you take a moment, maybe a series of weeks, to center and reflect. And to also share and show up. To share what God is doing in you. Or share you're unsure where God is taking you. And then show up in relationship with others. To risk something. Because the God of the universe risked His Son for you. You are loved. You haven't been forgotten. And I know there are moments when it feels like it's easy to distance ourselves relationally from people, when it's easy to say, I should just write someone off, and God's judgment is real. But my hope and my prayer is that we don't focus on the line. We don't focus on the wrong target. That we focus on Jesus. And in doing so, we make ourselves available to be used by Him. So we're going to come to our part point in our service each and every day. And I said service, and Richard's probably back there laughing and said, because we don't use the word service. We use the word gathering around here. And the reason we use the word gathering is because we are. This is a family gathering. This is not a service where we are trying to serve God or we're trying to act This is like a family reunion where we come together each and every week to recenter on what makes us family. So as we do that, I just want to pray. John's going to guide us through how we try to guide some response here. And so I I don't know what God is saying to you right now. But over these next few minutes, I just pray that you just reflect and make yourself available to Him. And maybe risk a little something this week. Let's pray. God, you are good. I thank you for your love and your grace and your patience with us, that you have risked something for us. God, that you risked your life for us to bring us into the family. God, I pray God, for those who may have felt condemned by the church in the past. They felt that they were unworthy 
or not fit for use. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit speaks to them and says they are loved and they are valuable. God, for those who are arrogant right now and saying in their sin and just kind of flaunting that, God, I, I pray that they move towards repentance. God, that they turn towards you. That they're not trying to figure out where the line is. God, but they look towards you. Thank you that you move towards us. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.